Well, I am excited to be together again today, and I got lots of reasons for that. The first is that, you know, earlier today in the first service, we had somebody say, this is my first time back physically since this whole COVID thing began. So if that's for you, then we welcome you. Come back to the family. If you're joining us from online at your house, we invite God's blessing upon you, but we would rather put our arms around you and bless you in his house. Then also today, yesterday, we've already mentioned this, but we had baptism at Bill Baggs Park, and oh my goodness, we celebrate with every. If you were baptized yesterday, one of those, the many that were baptized, would you stand? And I don't know if you're here or not, but if you happen to be, then there we go. Yeah, 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 yeah. Amen. Yes, amen. We're so happy to welcome you and invite God's blessing upon you today. Also, this is family worship day, and you know, school has started back up, so we want to welcome all of the kids in the room. You want to do that? And... Another thing I'm thankful for today are all the educators, our faculty, our administration in the public school system and the private school system who give their time, their energy, their love, their heart to our children. If you drive a school bus or you're a security guard or whatever your, li- your line of service is to help our children, would you stand? If you're one of the educators in Dade County, would you say, stand up and let us invite God's blessing upon you? We love you. We thank God for you. We're so grateful for you that you help us love our children. Thank you for that. And now, Nuestra Familia Aquí, if you are a part of the Christ Journey Family Ministry and you're a teacher or a volunteer or one of our parents who assist, would you stand and let us love you because you help us love our children? If you're in family ministry, come on, yeah. Yeah, this is a good thing. This is a good place, this is a good thing, and we're here for the good blessing of God in our lives on this family ministry day. And if you are one of those who seek to help others grow and develop, then you gotta know this. Wisdom says that you can't take somebody somewhere you haven't yet been, you know? So the the challenge there is to keep growing if you're one of those that are just a little bit farther down the way and you, that's enough to help somebody who's coming right behind you, well, then keep growing. And uh, in order to keep growing, James says this, let perseverance finish its work. <laughs> keep on. That you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lack wisdom... Yeah, yeah, I don't know what I don't know. Lord, I need to know. And he says then he is not going to, he is going to give generously of God to all without finding fault. He will not scold you. If you don't know what you don't know and you want to ask God for something, he's not going to judge you. It will be given you. Now, a professor friend of mine used to say, you know, if you want knowledge, go to college. If you want wisdom, go to God. Both of them matter a lot. And so what we're seeking to do, and we're continuing our journey with the Apostle Paul in his second and third missionary journeys across Europe. And today, we are coming to Athens, Greece, an ancient center of knowledge and the pursuit of wisdom, the home of great thinkers like Plato and Socrates. You've read of them. Uh, We may see today what Jesus has to offer intellectuals, 
that may be joining us. Now, when you hear that word, what do you think? Oh, that's not me. You know, that's not me. Or maybe you think, oh, yeah, I hit the books every week. (laughs) You know, I'm a faculty member or I'm a student in one of our great universities here in town. You hit the books every week. So intellectual sounds like something you do. But if you're saying, well, I'm not sure. Okay, I bet every one of us has an opinion about the shape the world is in right now and what's going on and why. And you say, oh, no, I don't just have an opinion. I have an informed opinion. Right? You know what you're saying? You're using your intellect. The word intellectual means using your ability to think in logical ways to understand things. That's all it means. Are you an intellectual? Well, if you use your ability to think in a logical way to understand things, according to Oxford Dictionaries, Learner's Dictionary, you're an intellectual. So I'm happy to be addressing fellow intellectuals today. And uh, I want to ask you this, fellow intellectuals. How smart are you? How smart are you? You see the TV show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Any fifth graders in the house? Got any fifth graders here? Yeah, there's right front row fifth grader. Got some more. Are you smarter than a fifth grader? This is a quiz game show if you haven't seen it. And uh, one mommy blog says this. It will cause you to test your knowledge and make you doubt your smarts. You see how smart you're not when you watch that show. Well, in this series, we have been expanding our knowledge and trying to increase our wisdom by joining the daring Apostle Paul on the adventure of his second missionary journey. And then what we're doing is from that, we are culling insights that we can take and apply in our life missions today. Um, and, uh, and so if, you, if this is your first time to be joining us on the journey, I would like to say welcome aboard. And then I would also like to say, if you'd like to benefit from any of the previous life lessons that we've been applying from this, you can find them on the Christ Journey app and then uh, won't miss anything as we follow the Bible path of the Apostle Paul in Acts, learning lessons from yesterday that will make a big difference today. See, that's what education does, young people. You're learning lessons from yesterday as other people have studied and learned by trial and error or by the gift of God, and you're applying it in your today. Well, I'm asking God to do that for somebody here today, that we could take some of these lessons that we learned from yesterday and then let them affect our lives today, what we're learning from and with the Apostle Paul. See, that means that you don't just go through life. We're intended to grow through life. But what's better than simply growing through life is doing it with somebody else who wants you to be with them on the journey, right? So that's what we do as our church family. We make the journey together, Christ's journey together with and from one another. And the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, is a great intellectual. We're going to see that. He's in Athens right now. Ancient Athens and this trip was like a university town. I mean, it is a proud capital of ancient culture. It's the home of philosophy, the cradle of democracy. Some of you have studied that in school. And what we've seen in this journey earlier is that when he went to Philippi, uh, that there it was a city of Romans. And we got to see how the good news brought benefit to Romans with the economic, the military, the spiritual, and political forces that were at work in that town. And then we saw how it would impact the Jews in Thessaloniki and Berea. And now today, we're in Athens, Greece, 
and we're seeing how it affects the intellectual life of the Greeks, the center of culture Athens was, religion, philosophy, and all those pagan gods. I think it's kind of a telling thing that with all their higher learning and intellectualism that they still haven't eliminated religion from their city, false religion included, from their city. Maybe you learned about the Greek gods. You could call them out, you know, Apollos, Zeus, Aphrodite, others coming to mind. You know, I remember reading a book on Greek mythology in school. Maybe you've read a similar one. Uh, while I was doing research for this particular message, I came across some blogs online that claimed that almost all DC comic superheroes are modeled after the Greek gods. You ever seen this? You know, the Justice League, for instance, is pretty much the pantheon. I won't go through all of them, but Superman is Zeus, Aquaman is Poseidon, the Oracle is Athena. Athena, the city of Athens, was named after Athena, and she was worshipped there as the goddess of war and wisdom, and her temple, the Parthenon, is immediately recognizable these days. You've seen it. You've seen those photographs, right? Well, Athens had many temples to all these different gods, and archaeologists show us, like Acts chapter 17, verse 16 says, the city was full of idols. And when Paul first arrived, verse 17, he reasoned. Now, there's an intellectual word, isn't it? He's using his logical capacity to try to make sense out of what's going on. He says he reasoned with the... uh, the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace. I mean, this is street conversation, day by day with those who happen to be there. But (laughs) what we also learn is it wasn't just a city of idols in worship. It was also a culture that was swirling with ideas. Mars Hill is right at the foot of the Acropolis that holds the Parthenon, and this is where the senior council of Athens, the high court, would meet. And it's also where thinkers would go to try to ponder the, uni- the probe, the, the mysteries of the universe, try to make sense out of life. We got a shot of a couple of those uh, thinkers trying to do that at that time. And um, <laughs> two groups of thinkers were active in Athens at the time that Paul was there the Epicureans and the Stoics. Perhaps you're familiar with those words too. Verse 18, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with them, had some give and take, had some back and forth. And some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? You know, his mouth is moving, syllables are coming out, but he's just babbling on and on. What is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, oh, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. See what that matters in a second. And they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, we unpack it a little bit. The Epicureans were essentially materialists. They believed that human life exists by natural chance, just happened. And then once you die, it's done. You're over. They believed that the true aim of life, you know, since YOLO, you're only, you only live once, And you got here by accident, and now you're going to be out for sure. He says the the true aim of life was avoidance of pain and of suffering, but not religious devotion since they believe that a personal God who is good and could help you experience a happy life simply doesn't exist. No such thing. 
They were harsh critics of idolatry. Even in a city full of idols, they felt like making sacrifices to the gods. Because you know, ancient Hebrews were not the only ones who sacrificed animals to gods. The, the pagans did it all the time in all of these temples. And so the Epicureans said, you know, making sacrifices to gods who are not personal and who really don't care, that may be religious, but I'm telling you, it's not rational. Epicureans. Impersonal deities cannot produce personal happiness. So for that, you're on your own to pursue maximum pleasure the best you can. Now that viewpoint has been dominating Western culture since the 18th century. The Epicureans' motto is simply this. You've heard it. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you may die. Stoics, on the other hand, are rationalists, and they pride themselves in being guided by analytical observations and careful reasoning. They, they uh, are basically pantheists, the Stoics were, believing that God and the world are pretty much the same thing, same stuff. God is not personal. He doesn't transcend the cosmos. But God is a divine force that can be harnessed and so being stoic meant you live your life in alignment with your inner divine, your inner divine rationality. And so, you know, maybe you've already realized that both of these viewpoints are still being practiced in our world today. One we call hedonism, hedonists. That's living for materialistic pleasure. Get all you can, can all you get, sit on the can until you kick the can, you know. That's, that's materialism. This is all you get. So get it all. And then monism is uh, found in Hinduism and Buddhism, and maybe you've already made this connection, New Age. New Age philosophy. Last time together, we explored this thought, that culture exists like a sea, S-E-A, around us in which human beings are fish, and we swim through the sea, not always conscious of where we are and what we're doing, we're just kind of going with the flow and we don't stop to think about it. And uh, another word for that idea is worldview. Worldview. Everybody's got a worldview. If you've been thinking about how do you make sense out of life and what's happened to you and where we came from and where we're going, then you've got a worldview. A worldview is basically a fundamental orientation of the heart. And it's a framework that you use to make sense of your world. Dr. James Sire's book, The Universe Next Door, is now in its sixth edition, and it's a textbook used in colleges and universities across the nation, and it explains this whole concept, and in it, he notes seven basic worldviews. Now, we're not going to go into all of these, but I want you to see that he is a, a stellar intellect who's making a profound attempt by a Christian intellectual to try to do what's represented on Mars Hill in Athens. What would they be talking about? How do you make sense out of life? And, and children, boys and girls, you know, this is something that, um, that grown-ups need to talk about from time to time, so um, I'm going to try to do it real quickly today as well. Uh, these flows of intellectual pursuit over time in the human race. First, theism. Theism led the way and uh, with a belief in God, 17th century theism, as a personal creator, 
personal creator. Then deism slips in and says, uh, well, this is what's left of theism when the personality of God is abandoned. There is a God, but he's not personal. And that kind of washed over the intellectual world. And then next came naturalism. With the further erosion of deism, it's not a God, it's all by nature. Materialistic nature has always been, always will be. Um, so the erosion of deism, but it still held out the hope of human rationalism that we can think our way through. Then nihilism came next. Maybe you're familiar with the, the name Nietzsche. This is what came when human reason realizes that it just doesn't have the power to explain as much as it thought it did and then starts dropping to nothing. Existentialism then rises with its belief in the power of the self, that you can will meaning in your life into being by your own conception of good and beauty and truth. And then you affirm by faith, that's inter interesting that the, the existentialist would say that, you have to affirm by faith what cannot be proven by reason. Some of you have already studied this stuff. You know what I'm talking about. But then monism comes next. This is what New Age offers. The thought that uh, combines the exalting of the self with the deity of all things. And then the one that's kind of dominated for a while, postmodernism, with this irrational belief that all truth is relative. I mean, you think about the statement just for a moment and see that it's, a, it's stating a universal categorical truth by saying all truth is relative. And you just want to ask, even that claim? Even that one? You know, that's, that's all relative as well? And that's the definition, of, for a definition that implodes upon itself, that can't, that's called non-sense. That's, uh, and what's happened in, in human culture as the nonsensical, irrational belief that has washed across human culture says, all things are relative? No way. You know, what's happening in culture? I was in, in Oxford University recently at the apologetics conference, and the scholars there were discussing this. One of the things they were observing was that in the many recent moral sensitivity movements, we're witnessing several moral sensitivity movements in culture, critical race theory, cancel culture. In reality, those are reactions against the hollowness of postmodernism and the emptiness of materialism. That saying that life is relative and that you really can't know truth and that it really doesn't all matter in the end is like something in the human spirit is saying, no ways, there, life matters, injustice is real. And so these things are bubbling up, they said, as part a testimony to the emptiness of what we've been fed in postmodernism, that woke culture and intersectionality is really a revolt against the hollow and unjust practices of postmodernism and materialism. Now, if I lost you in all of that, here's what I'm just, take a deep breath, inhale, exhale, just get, get back to the room. Um, all I'm trying to show you is that in our culture right now, it is storming in a clash of worldviews. Ideas in conflict in conflict, in conflict, ideas in conflict. Why? Because people are trying to make sense out of life uh, 
the life that we know as rationally and logically as they can. We're trying to apply our intellectual wisdom. And in a culture where postmodernism said, no, you make your own truth and you deconstruct it and you reconstruct it with the power of language, then suddenly it matters who's controlling the language. And then it all becomes about power. And whoever has the power gets to tell you what's real. And this is what's bubbling up in culture saying, no, you don't. That's the, that's the foment that's happening here. And for those who are intellectuals, who are rationally, logically trying to make sense out of the world that you're living in, that's Oxford definition, you realize that all these viewpoints can't all be true. So how can we respond to the idols and the ideas of our day, especially when it feels like you're on trial? Well, we're given a picture here in Paul, who is essentially on trial. He's been brought before the senior council at the Areopagus. It's the highest court. These are the gatekeepers of law and truth. It's the highest court in the land, and it's the place, by the way, where Socrates was judged and condemned. Why? Because he was accused of teaching strange ideas and advocating foreign gods. (laughs) Paul's being accused of teaching foreign gods, too, isn't he? And he's at the same place where Socrates was tried and So we're invited into this trial. He's been accused of teaching strange ideas, advocating foreign gods. Jesus and Anastasis was what they thought they heard him say. The Anastasia, Anastasis is the Greek word for resurrection. And they thought, oh, he's teaching this new God couple that's, you know, Jesus and his consort, Anastasis. When actually what Paul was saying is, no, Jesus and his resurrection can make all the difference in your life. So how does Paul do it in an environment fomenting with such challenge? Verse 22 and 34. I I want to just zip through them as quickly as I can. First, he just meets them where they are. You know what he says? I see in every way that you're very religious. As I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, and he didn't jump to a conclusion. He, He walked around. He observed. He looked carefully. He's doing research, applying his intellect And then he says, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So here, I'm here to tell you about the God you don't know yet. That's my job on the scene, right? This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So he starts where they are, and then he affirms the seeking and the longing and the hunger of their heart for meaning and for truth and hope. I see that you're looking everywhere. You're not leaving any stone unturned, even ones that you don't know about. You're saying we want to know more about what we don't know. So he meets them where they are and affirms their longing and their seeking. We want to do that too. That's why we have messages like this. That's why we have series like this. That's why we take trips like that. Because we want to listen and learn. And then secondly, he shares his God story. He doesn't try to correct every misconception. He says, he doesn't say, oh, no, 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 no. Anastasia is resurrection and Jesus is, no. He doesn't jump in trying to clean up their misconceptions or respond to their insults. I'm not a babbler. I've been to this school and that school and I was trained at this level. No, he doesn't do that. He just trusts his story to serve as his defense before the high court. And so I don't hear him being hostile or defensive. You could please read it for yourself. Um, but instead, he's, uh, he's trusting it to ring true in a way that resonates 
with his listeners. And so the message that he brings has basically five treasures that we can mine out of it real quickly. I'm just going to zip through them, like I said. First, verse 24, the God who made the world, everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Point one, God is creator and sovereign over the cosmos, contrary to the belief that it all happened by chance. Epicureans were listening, right? And then God is personal. God is a personal creator and owner of all that is. That's going to speak to the pantheists who say, something else. Point two, God is sustainer. He's not requiring anything of us. We don't keep him going. He keeps us going. He's sustaining us. Verse 25, with life and breath and everything else. We're the dependent ones. God's not dependent upon us for his existence. Point three, God is involved personally in human history. The reality of our ethnic diversity. Verse 26, from one man he made all the nations. That's the Greek word ethnos, from which we get ethnic, from which we have races. And what Paul is saying is that God was personally involved in the development of the races and then also to inhabit the whole earth and marked out their appointed times in history, their boundaries in the land. So in other words, God's not distant. God's not impersonal. He's been involved in the unfolding of human history, even though you may not know him and he may seem invisible. He's involved. Point four, God wants to be known, and God can be found. He says, if you seek him, verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and reach out and find him, for he is not far from any of us. Would you say that with me? He is not far from any of us. God still wants to be known and found. The purpose of our church is what? We're here to help people find and follow Jesus Christ. And we're his offspring. Now, we're not divine like the pantheists say, but we are made in God's image so that we are wired to know the God who made us personally in relationship. Point five, God will bring true justice through the resurrection. Justice does matter. Justice does matter. Setting the world right where it's gone wrong in relationships and nations where injustice, it matters. Justice will matter. Paul says, this true God that you don't know, verse 31, he said a day where he will judge the world with justice. Not capriciousness because he has the power, but justice by the man he's appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. In other words, Jesus, incarnate Jesus, conquers sin, all the injustices of all of time, takes it into himself as God, conquers it, rises from the dead, and now says, justice is done, and will he is qualified to do justice because he suffered it and he executed it. So we're then the, the closing thought is, you know what? We're all responsible for our behavior. We're all responsible for our moral choices. And choices bring consequences, and one day God will be setting the record straight. So after he finished, you know, what did the people do? Well, some sneered. It says, you know, like, eh. You know, what's next? What's for lunch? It's like, and then it says that some, some said, hey, we want to know more. You know, would you, could, we, could we have lunch? Can, can we can talk about this? Can we dig it out a little bit more? That's piqued my curiosity. And then some, some believed, yeah, from the Areopagus, the highest level, the senior court in Athens. Some believed. Like it says, 
Dionysius, a member of the council, Damaris, a woman, several others. And amazingly, here's the maybe the real incredible thing is that Paul left the court without being punished for his belief. First, he meets them where they were. Then second, he tells his God story, trusting it to clarify. And then third, he invites them all to turn to God in faith. This is verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. And that's an intellectual word too. We all have things we don't know. That's called ignorance. We're all ignorant about something. Something we just don't know yet. And it says, you know, God with the human race is... um, If you're in third grade, you're not expected to know what you do in 12th grade. And he's saying, well, you know, in the past, God has overlooked the ignorance. But now, since truth is being known and can be known, then you can follow it now. So he says, now the unknown God is making himself known so that all people everywhere will repent. What does that word mean? It means change your mind. Open your mind. Change your direction in life. Don't keep doing the same. Don't stay stuck where you are. And follow the one who has already acted justly. Now, that's what we're doing in the world too. And no, we're not all intellectuals at the depth level that the Apostle Paul would be. But the body of Jesus Christ through the church, Christ's journey, is here to share God's story in a relevant way at every age and stage of life, which brings me to Family Ministry Worship Day. To our preschoolers, we commit to helping them understand three core essentials. God made me, Jesus loves me, and the Bible is true. Then you move up to your elementary level, and we say, make wise choices because what you choose will follow you, right? And then build strong relationships because love is the greatest thing, and develop a deeper faith. This is not something that your parents can do for you. you got to do this. And then we crank it up, kick it up to the student level, and we invite them to enter a posture of learning. And something you might hear said around here, hey, we're all wrong about something. You can get teenagers to agree on that usually. Right? We're, we don't get it all right all the time. But that's our way of saying that I might not be seeing this fully, but I'm open to learning more. And speaking of learning more, adults, grown-ups, you know, where do you go with your questions? Bring them to your group. That's the first place to go. Are you in a group where you can open the Bible, open your mind, open your mouth, and enter the conversation? Right? We're just now launching groups for the fall. And what we're hoping is to stimulate involvement and discussion that will lead to life change. Now, So I got to ask you, you know, how smart are you? That's the title of the talk. Are you a know-it-all? You already know it all? Or are you willing to say, well, maybe not all of it. Maybe there's a little something that I could learn. Like I said, we're all ignorant about something, just different things usually. Okay, how smart are you? Are you smart enough to know how to hold on to what really matters in life? And not try to treat everything that way. Are you smart enough to know how to let go of something that really isn't that which we hold on to as core? Are you smart enough to know how to filter through all of those competing ideas so that you're going to land on something that matters and that's true? How smart are you? The word disciple means learner. We're being disciples as we keep on learning 
Are you willing to keep learning to help others learn about Jesus? Imagine this, imagine this. You being smart enough to know how to put into words your journey of faith, your intellectual understanding in a way that helps somebody else be able to engage and discuss and come to their decision about it to follow Christ. That's what we're seeing Paul do. Are you smart enough to know how to do that? To share the message so that somebody else could have their chance to experience the life and be baptized and change their trajectory. Some years ago, my wife and I were in a, a local store in South Dade and shopping at a vacuum store. And, um, and she made friends with another customer that the owner said, oh, talk to her, she'll know. And uh, out of that friendship, then as wives made friends, you know, guys, kind of husbands kind of got sucked into that. And, um, and, and so when her husband and I met and he discovered that I was a pastor, he immediately let me know that he was a strong atheist who has no place in his life for priests, pastors, God, or people like me. So that has made for a very interesting relationship, 20 years plus. And um, I, I just kept this, I had this affinity to, to keep engaged in the conversation. When we did groups uh, on the Purpose Driven Life, best-selling book in, in America at that time. We had people come over to the house. Well, I invited them to come over to the house as part of our group. When a little bit later on, we had Skeptics Anonymous here at the church, and the rule there was, you know, believer, you can come, but you gotta bring an atheist or an agnostic with you in order to get in, because that's what we're gonna discuss, that stuff that matters to people who are trying to engage the mind. And I said, oh, I know who to invite, <laughs> you know. And he came. And we discussed, I mean, it was half and half, half atheists, agnostics, skeptics, half believers that were trying to use our intellects to try to understand and try to make the connection. Um, and all along the way, I felt like I would be on trial at times and that he let me know that there was no way that he was ever going to, uh, to cross the line of faith. But I kept being drawn into the friendship and he kept responding and along the way in that friendship, I discovered why he had been so hostile. He had been harmed as a child by a religious leader. And uh, as an adult, he was now a lawyer, a tough prosecuting lawyer who was prosecuting religious leaders for things they had done. And then I started understanding more of the backstory and of the reality, but, but he still persisted in saying, no, not me. Recently, his family called to tell us that he was in the hospital with a very severe illness. And we went to visit, and when we entered the room, his three grown children and his wife were standing there at bed. And, uh, and the first thing he said to me was, Bill, you're the real deal. And then I said, we visited. And then I said, well, could I pray? He said, yes. And so I prayed for strength and for comfort and for blessing, for wisdom, you know, just God, a sense of your presence. And then as we were finishing the prayer, our heads were bowed. My eyes were closed. I don't know if anybody else was looking around or not, but our heads were still bowed. And I said, I called him by name and I said, is there anything you want to say to the Lord? And then we were just quiet. And he said, I'm open. Come help me. And uh, so I, 
when we, when we opened our eyes, I mean, we were all weeping. And um, it was a powerful moment of, um, my heart was so full. We got notice the next week that he had passed. But not before he had said, I'm open, come help me. Friends, um, he was a very smart man, highly educated, fueled by a passion for justice, who cared about children. He insulted me many times along the way. He was verbally hostile against me in my own home. I have witnesses. Um, there were times when I felt like I was on trial. But God graced us with the conversation to the point that now God's protection for one of his wandering children has shown up. And what I'm praying is that those of us in family ministry, those of us in Christ's journey family would say, Lord, we want to be this kind of place where all of those who bear your image can be loved and engage the conversation over time. How much time does it take? As much as it takes. But then we're trusting God to do what he wants to do because he loves us so much. Would you pray with me now? Gracious God, I just thank you for the privilege of getting to engage our minds and our hearts, trusting you to do what only you can do. And thank you that we still witness that in people we care about who cross the line of faith, who enter the water of baptism, those who say, um, this isn't just a passing fancy for me. This isn't just a hurt from my past, but I'm open. Help me keep learning. Help me. Help me. Is this the prayer of your heart today? Lord, help me with the things I don't understand. Help me with the people that are hard to love. Help me where I don't have all the answers. Lord, help me. I'm open. And if this is your day to open your heart and mind to Jesus, the risen Christ, then I want to invite you. Maybe you said, oh, I'm not that far. Okay, well, then just try this one. God, if you're real, would you show me? And then just pay attention. But if this is the day you want to cross that line, begin that relationship, Lord Jesus, thank you for the way you love me. Thank you that it took you all the way to the cross and then rose from the dead, the power of your love to forgive my sins, to fill my life, be my savior. I'm open. Come help me. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me just now, our heads are bowed. You'd let me ask God's blessing upon your next steps of faith. Would you simply raise your hand wherever you're seated? Online, you can join us in the chat and just keep them raised for just a moment. Okay, here in the middle, God bless you. Toward the, and then in the back on the right and in the middle on the right, God bless you. Amen. Lord Jesus, for everybody who has raised their hand, for those who I haven't seen, but you know, may they know right now the blessing of your presence, the fullness of your peace the gift of salvation that you give us freely in Jesus.
And Lord, would you help us make the journey together as we make this prayer in your name. Amen.